promise, Lord, never again. But I also know that you know what a weak willed person I am. I'm a wonderful person. Hello and welcome back to the Treadweary Podcast, the audio arm of Treadweary.com. I am your host, Pastor Carlton Smee. And as always, we, we gather around the Word of God to see what God is doing on our behalf. And specifically, we've been looking at the Gospel of John, looking through at it through the lens of worship, realizing that we are really bad worshipers, that we, we are not very good at, at anything that we do. And in fact, we need God to come and do many, many works in us for our sake, that, that we are in need of his care, of his provision, of his strength especially during this time of, of uh, another election and a pandemic and, and all those things, realizing this, necessi- this necessity for the work of God in and amongst us is essential to what we are doing and living, or at least God living in us and doing in us. And so today we are going to be continuing with John chapter 19, and we are in the midst of of Jesus' trial, and he has just been led away to be crucified. And now we'll be dealing with the crucifixion, the story that all of us know, and the burial that John portrays. And then we'll almost be done with John. We just have a couple more chapters after that. Most of you are applauding right now, I'm sure. I can hear you all the way uh, from wherever you are listening. A, a big welcome to all of you. But let us open our Bibles to John chapter 19. We're going to be beginning at verse 17. I'm going to be reading out of the New King James Version. As a pastor, I tend to have many different Bibles of many different versions. And uh, this one happens to be my great-grandfather's, and I've been using it for the past couple of weeks in my own personal study. And I I just like it. So we're going to use it uh, for, for this time. But John chapter 19, verse 17 and following. And he, that is Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write to the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it, because it shall, whose shall it be? that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided his garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, 
a disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, uh, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, open our hearts to hear your word, to digest it, to know it. Open it up for us that we might see what you have done in Christ on our behalf, behalf, that we might draw closer to you, be drawn there by your spirit, and through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. He went out, bearing his cross. He went out to a place. This should be somewhat familiar to you, this this understanding of that, and maybe it is not, but it, it harkens back to Hebrews 13, chapter 11. Uh, yeah, Hebrews 13, verse 11 <laughs> through 15. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. This alludes to the law. And to the sacrifice for sin outlined in Leviticus uh, chapter 4. And, and there it's talking about unintentional sin or, or, or sin done through error. And, and the priest is called on to bring a bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head and kill the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to, into the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, a sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And then it 
goes on following after taking fat and kidneys and fatty lobe of the liver and that sort of thing. It was taken, that was taken from the bowl uh, of the sacrifice for a peace offering. And he burns them on the altar, torches them, makes briquettes out of them. But the bull's hide and all its flesh with its head and legs, its entrails and offal, so it, all its parts that we'd probably turn into haggis, the whole bull you shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn, burn it on wood with fire where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. The ashes being that left over from other sacrifices there at the, at, uh, at the tabernacle. And here there's this illusion then of Christ bearing his cross and going out, uh, being, being that sacrifice for sin, that, that covering. And we see there also that it says a place of the skull. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, something that uh, you were going to be uh, thinking of as he's not going to a picnic. It's a place that is meant for death. It's a place of death. It, it, uh, many of us probably picture in our head place of a skull of, of um, something like from Goonies or Peter Pan or something like that, where it's a cave that actually looks like a skull or something like that. It might be. I don't know. But basically, it's a declaration that this is a place where he's going to die. He's not going to hang out. He's not going to have a party. He, he's on his way to death. And there it was that they crucified him and and two others with him. And then again, like we saw last week, we have Pilate being a preacher for us, right? We have this declaration, this sermon written for all to read, written in every possible language of necessity in the area that, that Pilate is serving. There in, in Greek and, and Latin and, and Hebrew or Aramaic, more than likely, to make sure that everyone knows Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And in some ways, it would be able to say, well, he thought himself a king and he lost. Rome won. Suck it, right? Um, or the way I like to think about it is here we have Pilate basically giving a needle to the religious leadership saying, no. I've made plain what who this man was. If you have an issue with it, you can take it up with God. But here, this is this Jesus, this one who's hanging on a tree right now, who has on his head a crown of thorns, stripped naked for all to see. This is your king, the king of the Jews, the one that is sent for you to do a particular thing. And we have the religious leadership basically saying, no, no, change it. Change what you have written. It should say, well, no, his opinion was he was king of the Jews, or he said that he was the king of the Jews. This, he wasn't really the king of the Jews. But Pilate says, no, what I've written, I've written. It's done. This is your king. Accept it. It's, it, it's, it's done. It's signed, sealed, delivered. And then we have the soldiers, right? They've taken his clothes. They've taken everything that he owns. He doesn't own anything else. He had his clothes. That was it. And they've even taken that away from Jesus. He's left with nothing but our sin. And it is there that we talked a little bit last week about how we were going to be taking a look at Psalm 22. There isn't much to look at apart from from John includes this here to be able to say that Jesus is this fulfillment of whatever prophecy was happening there in Psalm 22 that that 
his his garments and his clothing were going to be divided and lots were going to be cast for it and it was going to be done by Gentiles. By those who were sent there to kill him, they were going to do that. And so they divide up and take away, divide up and take away everything that Jesus had left, that there's nothing left for him there. And then we, we see Jesus being a, a, a good son, right? Jesus fulfilling his human obligations to his, his birth mother, Mary. And he, he hands her off to John, which, which is weird because we have others who, you know, that, that claim to be uh, the brother of, of Jesus, whether it be James or Jude, um, th- these ones who, who are supposedly the, the brothers, and so they should be the ones to take care of Mary. But here Jesus says, no, I'm going to hand her off to you, John. I'm going I'm to put her in the care of, of you. And for Catholic brothers and sisters, this is usually where you turn to say, well, now God has given us Mary to, to appreciate to, to love and to cherish. Um, but in some ways, I wonder if it is a picture of Jesus handing over to us the church to love and cherish the church. The church is a, a, a dear portion of this Christ who now hangs on the tree. Well, then it says after this, Jesus knowing that the things were now accomplished, that everything was done, that it was finished, that he had done everything. Every last sin in the history of the world was soaked up into his flesh in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled, saying, I thirst, which again comes out of, out of Psalm 22, a, a look at, um, at, that, at that back again, at that psalm that, that John is doing. Uh, Matthew does an even bigger job than, than John does in turning back to to Psalm 22, if I remember correctly, but but here we have, uh, you know, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. This is verse 15 of, of Psalm 22. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Almost a depiction here of Jesus saying, okay, it's time for me to die now. He's saying I thirst, meaning I've become dust. I'm done. And And they bring him some sour wine, and then he says, okay, it's done. Everything's, everything's done. Game's over. Final touchdown is scored. Let's go here. And he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. The King James actually says, if I remember correctly, he gave up the ghost. <laughs> I, love, I love that phrase. It's cool. Gave up the ghost. But then we have uh, another interesting problem for those of uh, uh, those of us religious people because it says now that the religious folks wanted to uh, make sure that they wouldn't have to eat their Passover while people were screaming from the cross. It, it looks like mercy, which is probably true. It looks like an attempt to just, let's get this done. Let's get this over with. But in some ways too, it's like, well, this is the Sabbath. We need to get this done. We can't be, waiting for people to die while we're, we're supposed to be eating and celebrating and partying, partying and, and all that stuff. No, we, we can't be doing that. And so 
they they break the legs of the guys, which would basically mean that they would suffocate, almost like hanging. And they come to Jesus, but he's already dead, which is weird because people could have lasted for days on those crosses. They could have lasted for a long time. It would have been excruciating and and horrible. Ba- by that time, they'd probably be begging for death, but here they've only been on those crosses for three hours. You know, barely even been there, and yet Jesus is dead, which shows a major picture of him because not only is he God, but he is the God who controls death, even his own, that he gets to choose when he's going to die. We don't get to choose when we're going to die. It, it is in the hands of God to control that for us, or at least it should be. But here Jesus has that control over his own, his own death. And then we have John making sure that you understand that he's not lying. He who has seen has testified and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. This, this, this work being done here of retelling the story, and every time you read it, you should read these verses again and again so that you might believe. All of this is written down so that you might know that this Jesus is the one who's gone outside the camp to take for you your pain, your sorrow, your sin, your shame, your guilt, your idolatry, all those things, and he's put them on himself. And now he has died for you. We haven't gotten to the resurrection yet. That's that's next week. <laughs> but here he has done this for you. He, he has given of himself for you in this way. And so too then, as we come to this text, we start to have to realize that the whole working of retelling the gospel story, the 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 gospel story in our in our church services, the gospel story in our Bible studies, the gospel story in Sunday school and confirmation, however, whenever. The whole purpose of it is to bring people to faith, to increase the faith of those who already believe, and to 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 tell of what has been done for them that they might trust it to be true, which is what it means to believe. And and uh, he adds in uh, a couple of more passages, uh, one from Psalm 34 and another uh, conglomeration from Zechariah, the not one of his bones shall be broken, they shall look on him whom they pierced, uh, giving us, giving us uh, more prophecy that, that Jesus has now fulfilled for us. Uh, on our behalf, messianic prophecies being this Messiah, even for the soldiers who pierced him, even for the soldiers who ridiculed him, even for the soldiers who divided his garments, even for the religious folks who who sat there and, and taunted him and rejoiced in his death. It was all done so that you might believe and that you might come to faith it's the same thing with Joseph and Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Nicodemus being one who at least came to Jesus, and we have an accounting of this. And it is there that when we looked at it back in John 3, it was this whole work of realizing that, that the work of God is one to give birth to us in the Spirit. That it's not something that we do on our own, but we beg for God to send a preacher to proclaim to us the good news of the gospel, that we might believe it and trust and so, 
for our for our worship services as worshipers we we first worship this one who's hanging on a tree for us who died for us but then also we have to realize that there are going to be people there who are joseph of arimathea and nicodemus people who have come out from some other place and they they are desiring to do something for this christ And when we make things about everything but Christ, when we make church about everything but what it is that Christ has done for us, then we deny the opportunity for for people like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to fulfill their, their role, their measure of what it is to be part of the body of Christ. Here we have Nicodemus being this one who was birthed anew in the Spirit, so much so that he comes to help Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea being birthed in the spirit, willing to sacrifice himself in order to bury this one who has paid the price for him, who has redeemed him. And then finally, these last two verses. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. There's symbolism here for us, church. When we gather before the throne of grace in our worship, wherever that happens, whenever that happens, we are gathering in a space that is both tomb and garden all at the same time. It is a place of death, both in the fact that we are going to die and we, we serve one who has said he will raise us from the dead, but also that we have to regularly die ourselves, put ourselves to death through the cross of Christ, that we might be raised anew in him every day, because otherwise we become ultra-religious people who want the convenience of whatever it is that we want out of our religion, and most preferably not Jesus, is often the direction that we will go. But here we have this tomb in a garden at a place called Golgotha, a place of the skull, a place that was reserved for death, And what a symbol there of this garden of new life, a new garden, just as there was a garden that Adam and Eve were in back in Genesis. Now here's this garden and this one who is, is, uh, is the one that has come to destroy Satan, to destroy sin, to destroy death, is going to be laid in that tomb in a garden. And then it says in verse 42, so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. It, it seems to be a tomb of convenience that, well, it's there, so we're just going to place him in it. But in reality, <laughs> in reality, you have them placing him there. I wonder, because maybe Joseph and, and Nicodemus trusted that when Jesus said he would rise on the third day, he was telling the truth. There was no need for there to be a special Jesus tomb for him because it was only a temporary holding site. That maybe he was he died and was to be buried, so there was just a place to save him for a little while and, uh, until he, he were to rise again. That it was just this place that was nearby. There was a new tomb, though. Uh, and... Uh, no one else had been laid in there. Christ taking a different path for us to death because he had a different death. He was able to control when he was going to die and now he gets to control when he's going to live. 
And so it's a, it's a tomb in which the giver of life was to be laid, and from that tomb was to spring forth life. So I pray, church, for us, that in our worship, in our churches, could we be living churches? Could we be churches that are a gathering of a congregation of people who have died and been buried with Christ and raised to new life through this life-giving Jesus? Can we be a people who gather in worship, not for our own sakes, not to sing the songs that we like just because we want to sing the songs we like, but to hear this word and to be destroyed by it, that we might come into his presence knowing that he is the one who has gone outside the camp, outside the city, bearing our reproach that he might give life to us, the life that comes through death, the life that comes through a death that is present only in his life, not in ours, that we are only given life in him because he gives it to us freely. How would all of that impact the way that we worship and the way that we gather for church? How would that impact how we look at things like politics and look at things like uh, our money, look at things like prestige and and our, our appointments, our careers, all those things? How can this story of this Christ dying and being buried, truly dead, impact how we come before this God who is a suffering God, who now lives and reigns for us. Well, that's all for this week. Next week, it's the resurrection. And Mary Magdalene prayers that you will be revived in spirit, especially during a time of anxiety and uncertainty, that you might know that this Christ whom we crucified, who died, who was buried in a tomb, was one who in a tomb of death sprung forth into life for you. With that, we say thanks be to God. Go in peace with the blessings of God upon you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.